You are listening to The Conversation here on HPR One. I'm Catherine Cruz. Early on in the Red Hill water crisis, we heard about families worried about their pets who stopped drinking water. There were others who got sick after drinking that water. And to get the latest, we talked to Captain Matthew Putnam, chief of the military's veterinary services at Fort Shafter, which has extended its hours to help affected pet owners. So it's been, you know, really hard on those families. And, you know, luckily we were able to extend those services. So starting on about 2 December, um, you know, we opened up a a walk-in clinic so that anyone in that affected area, if they had, you know, concerns or sick animals, they could bring them to us. You know, mostly we've been seeing some vomiting and diarrhea. Some of the animals that maybe maybe had been bathed or uh, we saw some, some skin irritation, maybe some eye irritation if it had gotten in there. Luckily, what we're seeing is that, you know, about 48 to 72 hours kind of after they, you know, as long as they've gotten back onto bottled water or some other clean water source, all those vomiting and diarrhea signs for the most part have resolved. A few that, you know, kind of lingered on and we've treated those and they've resolved. And on the skin cases, you know, kind of treating that skin irritation and most of them have resolved. Can you say how many cases that you've seen just the first part of this month? Yeah, we've seen about 115 patients since 2nd to December. So not an overwhelming number, but, you know, certainly, uh, you know, more than we would normally see. And we were hearing about cases where there were a confirmed diagnosis of petroleum poisoning. One lady that I talked to had said that her dogs wouldn't drink water, and they just didn't know why. And then somebody else who said, you know, her dog had major um, digestive issues for weeks ended up dying. I mean, what can you say just about the seriousness of of some of the reports in the community? You know, I know there have been reports of people who who have lost their animals, you know, and that's, and it's difficult when you're going, when they're going through this, because that's part of it is, you know, a lot of these symptoms from the hydrocarbon toxicity, but from, you know, what's in the water, you know, also show up with lots of other kind of issues. So really determining, you know, what is from this toxicity and what isn't is difficult. But, you know, right now, you know, if we're seeing those, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, skin irritation signs from those animals that were exposed, we're just kind of treating it as, you know, that's what it is. But a lot of it is symptomatic treatments. What can we do to to stop the the vomiting or the diarrhea? Or, you know, maybe they start getting dehydrated because they've, they've had those or they haven't been wanting to drink the water. So getting them rehydrated. Here at this clinic, you know, we've been fortunate. We haven't seen any of those severe life-threatening cases. I know especially within some of the, you know, some of the exotic and smaller pocket pets that are a little bit more sensitive to some of that toxicity that we don't see here. I know people have uh, reported at least that, you know, they've had some very sick animals. When you say pocket pets, what are we talking about? Hamsters, gerbils, skinny pigs. Okay, but you've just been seeing mainly what, dogs, cats? We, yeah, we've been seeing dogs and dogs and cats here. And then, you know, recommending, you know, if people have those kind of exotic type animals to, you know, go see a veterinarian who specializes kind of in that and seeing those types of animals and provide better care to them. And we did talk to uh, uh, one family who had some type of high levels of uh, pool chemicals in their drinking water, uh, cyanic acid, I think. Are you seeing any cases due to that? I'm not, not, yeah, I'm not aware of any pool chemicals in the water, so it's not something I can really speak to, and, and we haven't seen any cases here. So. 
We had just talked to Representative Case, and he said that that was one theory that the military was looking at because those abnormal chemicals uh, and, and levels appeared before some of the fuel really got rolling. So they were just wondering if there were maybe two different things going on in some of the neighborhoods there. Our, our real focus here is, you know, trying to take care of, you know, as many of the animals as we can, you know, either either taking care of them here or if we have, you know, we haven't seen any yet, but, you know, referring them off to one of the emergency um, clinics if they did need, you know, more care than we were able to provide. Okay. And is your clinic really the only one that's servicing those military families? There's four clinics on the island, but yeah, we've made Fort Chapter partly just because it's, you know, with close, but not right there as kind of the one where people come to for any of the uh, fuel, the water exposure. And where are your other clinics located? So the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam has, has one clinic. Schofield Barracks has a clinic, and then the Marine Corps Base in Kenny O'Hay also has a clinic. Okay. All right. But Fort Chapter is the one that's designated. Okay. And then uh, pe- people can just bring in their pets uh, anytime? So we're doing it every day right now from 8 in the morning until 6 o'clock at night um, as a walk-in basis for anyone whose pet has been affected by the, by the water. And we're still also running our, our normal clinics, so for people who need to see their animals, either for wellness or sick, um, we still have those appointments available. Sounds like then, it, then most of what you're seeing is pretty uh, short-term, you know, and recovering. The pets are recovering. Yes, ma'am. And, you know, we're, you know, we're still, you know, anytime you've got some type of potential toxicity, you know, we don't know everything. So we are, you know, we're trying to keep, keep track of, you know, any, any other cases and just making sure that, you know, something else pops up that we're, we're kind of watching that and paying attention to it. Um, but, but right now, yeah, it's all been pretty, can't say mild. I mean, some of these animals have been pretty sick with the vomiting and diarrhea or, or the skin, skin issues, but have been things we've been able to manage and control, you know, and there's a number of our, you know, soldiers and, and civilians who work for us who, who are in that mm-hmm. area. So, you know, it's, we're also take, taking care of them, um, making sure they're, you know, got everything they need. That was Captain uh, Matthew Putnam, Chief of Veterinary Services at Fort Shafter, which has been treating more than 100 of the pets affected by the fuel-contaminated water in housing areas which use the military's water system. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, a full-service wealth management team rooted in Hawaii, committed to a customized, integrated approach with a global outlook. TheRicePartnership.com Is the state ready for a big investment of federal funding to improve broadband across uh, the islands? Well, that is the subject of today's reality chat. Joining us this morning is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kevin Dayton. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Catherine. So, ready or not, here it comes. Here it comes. I think everyone has pretty much recognized during the pandemic, uh, if not earlier, that broadband is a, is a necessary service, and we're relying on it nowadays for everything from Amazon shopping to uh, educating our kids and to Netflix. Um, increasingly, people even rely on the Internet for healthcare services, so it doesn't get much more essential than that. And when the Congress was writing the pandemic relief bills, lawmakers had that very much in in mind, and they sort of packed the bills with money for broadband upgrades across the country. Now, what everybody always wonders in Hawaii is, what do we get out of that? It turns out quite a lot. 
The Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, signed into law late last year, has $30 million in broadband funding for Department of Hawaiian Homelands alone. And as I think a lot of people know, they've been struggling for years with, with their broadband service. Um, the federal infrastructure bill that just recently passed has another $60 million for Hawaiian homes and another $100 million for other broadband projects statewide. That's 160 just in that one bill. And that's not all. The pandemic relief bill known as the American Rescue Plan Act has another $115 million for broadband projects in Hawaii. Um, and there will definitely be opportunities to apply for more competitive grant funding in the months ahead. And state officials tell me that they hope to take advantage of that as well. That's a lot of money. It is. And I know you also reached out to the University of Hawaii uh, because they're going to be kind of taking the lead on some of this spending. Exactly. So one one factor that sort of complicates all this is there's so much money coming in on such short notice that there isn't really any step-by-step roadmap to tell the state how to spend the money. You know, we don't have a list of what are the top priority projects. Um, we don't have a schedule that sets out exactly what order each project should be done, which one goes first. And you would expect that there would be a huge scramble to get specific projects funded. There'll be a good deal of lobbying, one would think. And uh, to sort of sort through that, Governor Ige has appointed uh, the University of Hawaii to lead the way on that. Um, That means that UH Chief Information Officer Garrett Yoshimi suddenly has an enormous amount of money to work with, and also some pretty pressing information infrastructure needs that need to be addressed. And he's very familiar with that and is about ready to launch on that effort. Yeah, because we have been hearing lots about the undersea cables that go between the islands, and and they're old, like a lot of our infrastructure. Exactly. That's one of the first things he brought up. Uh, You know, when when he talks about um, his concerns with the state infrastructure, there's a lot of concerns about rural infrastructure, but what he's focused on is what's called middle mile. And for Hawaii, that includes those submarine cables that link up the neighbor islands with Oahu. We've been hearing for years that those cables are aging, as you know. Um, Their expected life is maybe 25 years, and the two major cables, two of the major cables, are approaching that age. If those cables fail, um, and people may remember that happened on Kauai several years ago, uh, as Yoshimi put it, we're back to the Stone Age, uh, because we're so used to all these services and all this information coming to us and, and the convenience of all that. Um, Those cables are extremely expensive, and if they break, you can't just fix them overnight. It's not just a simple fix. And if they're they're no longer usable, then that's a huge problem. Uh, Yoshimi told us that when the dust settles from these grants, he is hoping to see either one or two new cable landings on each of the islands. So you think about the, the, the magnitude of that project, that kind of a project. That's huge. Yeah, and I worry because, you know, there is the EIS process with all the undersea stuff that they're going to be... Um you know, moving around down there. Absolutely. Those of us who've watched just land-based EISs and and environmental assessments, I mean, they're incredibly complex. They get held up. They get, you know, things go wrong. And, and, you know, the rail project is a classic example. That was held up by by environmental reviews for a time. So things can certainly go wrong, and there are deadlines uh, for spending this money. And so the state is going to have to be on it. Um, And Mr. Yoshimi is going to have a lot of pressure on it. Right, okay, so whether it's undersea cables or uh, broadband to uh, Hawaiian homelands beneficiaries, uh, yeah, this is going to be lots of work. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and lots of of pressure, too. A lot of people want uh, rural broadband, yeah, out to the rural, rural areas. Yep, the need is great. But thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Take care.
That was Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. You know, Hawaii's veterans will pay homage to a fiercely loyal supporter this weekend. Former Honolulu City Councilman John Henry Felix has done much to give back to our community. He's active with the Alzheimer's Association, has long been a big supporter of scouting, and he's also credited with providing support for soldiers, sailors, and airmen and women. A special ceremony is to take place at the State Veterans Cemetery in Kaneohe on Saturday because of a generous donation that cemetery is in existence. We sat down with former Governor John Wahee and AMVETS Vice Commander Ron Lamb, both friends of John Henry Felix. We start off with Governor Wahee. Actually, John Henry has spent about 80 years doing things for veterans, and I got to know that and actually know John Henry because we uh, actually ran against each other Ah. in (laughs) politics. He's a wonderful community person, and he is a a very active, or was a very active member of the Hawaii Republican Party. So back when I ran for governor in 1986, he was the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor. And what would happen was he would show up at all these rallies and give these speeches, and uh, I would listen to him and then go go up and do my little spiel, you know. But, you know, after a while, I started to listen to him, and he kept talking about the need to do something for Hawaii veterans. And and he had like four things on mind. One, there needs to be a of Office of Veterans Affairs. There needs to be a veterans hospital at Tripler. There needs to be a monument to uh, the uh, Vietnam and Korean War veterans. And most importantly, he talked about the need to develop a state veterans cemetery because Punchbowl was starting to fill up and which meant that if you were a veteran and you wanted to be buried in a, cemetery, a veteran cemetery, your remains may have to be moved to the mainland. And it just didn't make sense. And as I sat there, I'm thinking, hey, this guy has something going, you know. And so we became friends and started talking about this. And immediately after I got elected, I called him in. I said, let's have breakfast. Let's talk <laughs> about that. And to his credit, he was involved in the achieving, the development of all of these four things. So today we have an Office of Veterans Affairs. He worked with our delegation, especially Spocky Matsunaga, and created the Veterans Hospital. We have a, we have a monument to Vietnam, Korean War veterans at, on the state capitol. But most importantly, most importantly, we have a cemetery located on this side in the state cemetery for Hawaii's veterans. And that would not have been possible, actually, uh, without a contribution of land, the land on which the veterans cemetery uh, is located on was actually dedicated to the state, was given to the state, by the efforts of John Henry Felix. And I was just there over the Veterans Day holiday, and Wasn't it is beautiful? just a wonderful spot. And yes. it, it, not only, it not only was the foundation for a veteran cemetery on Oahu, but it also triggered the idea that the neighbor islands ought to have their own cemeteries as well. And so it was the, it was the beginning of a n- 
statewide network uh, of uh, a veteran cemetery. But it would not have happened without the involvement of, of John Henry and without his very generous contribution, which is why this coming Saturday, uh, December 18th, we will be honoring him. You know, actually, about time. <laughs> there you go. About time. We will be honoring him. The real sponsors of everything are the AMVETs in Hawaii. And they re- they recognize what John Henry has done because, actually, John Henry's been doing stuff for veterans since he was the uh, assistant to Governor Quinn, <laughs> which, as wow. you know, really goes back to... Uh, actually to pre-statehood. Ramnam, why don't you talk about, you know, AMVETS, for folks who don't know about your organization. Oh, I'd be happy to talk about AMVETS. Before I do, let me just make a note that I first met John Henry in 1988. We had a business relationship. I was living on the mainland. Prior to that, uh, I lived my life overseas in the military. I lived on the mainland. Really had, I'm one of those guys that had no plans on returning to Hawaii. I had my family. But I had a good job offer, and I thought, gee, my kids were not quite into high school, and they did not grow up in Hawaii. Wow. Now, I, now, I'm part Hawaiian. I went to Kamehameha High School. I thought, well, what an opportunity. This company will move me at their expense to Hawaii to run a corporation. So I, I took that offer, uh, mainly because of my family. And as God would have it, all three of my kids got into Kamehameha High School. <laughs> and they all graduated <laughs> from there, too, right? <laughs> so the company was doing work with uh, Borthwick. Uh, John Henry owned Borthwick. And so I got to meet him, and we did business together, and he was such a delightful person. And so for me to come full circle again was such a great blessing opportunity. And, and he's opened the doors now for, for meeting Governor Hawaii and to do things like I'm doing right now. So if I could just <clears throat> take a minute to, uh, to tell you about AMVETS, John Henry Felix is a member of AMVETS, and uh, he is the oldest living member here in AMVETS Hawaii. Right. I think I'm probably the next oldest. <laughs> 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 and uh, so it's, it's, it's fun to have him uh, with us, and I, I, I believe it's because of his desire to uh, make us look good. <laughs> there yeah. you go. But he also trusts us in, in handling details like this. So we're honored to be here. But very briefly, AMVETS, uh, I joined AMVETS eight years ago. Prior to that, I never heard of it. I got out of the Army. I was one of those guys that I wanted to have nothing to do with the military. It, it, for me, it was not a very positive experience. And likewise with probably most other veterans. Uh, it's 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 a challenge. It's difficult. There's a lot of politicking, and it's a big green machine. I was an army. I was an army officer, but my friends, I grew up with here in Hawaii. Two of my classmates, high school, killed in action. Right. And uh, you know, I was in high school when the Vietnam War started, and I saw the big planes flying over Punchbowl, living in Makiki Heights. And it was scary. You know, we knew people that were getting killed. My good friends were going off to Vietnam, and I thought, gee whiz, I, I could be there too. So how did you decide to get involved with AMVETS? I, when I moved back here, a friend of mine approached me and said, hey, Ron, can you help our troops that are rotating, getting out, or out of the military, transitioning to mili- uh, civilian? 
I said, sure, I can do that because that was my life as a civilian. And fast forward today, we have a veteran's center. It, it blows the socks off of me because I had no vision then of what could happen. And I think I can tell you what we're doing. And a lot of it really has to do with all the volunteers. Uh, you know, the, the resources we have, it's not what I did or any one of us has done, but we've laid the groundwork and foundation to build on. And so in the eight years I've been here, so what kind of services do you offer? Right now, we're working with the VA because we have facilities now. Uh, the Navy has, uh, we have a lease with the Navy on some property that was sitting vacant for decades. It was an old officer's club. But we have about 2,000 square feet. We have two baseball fields, a tennis court. The first time I looked at it with Donovan Lazarus, our commander, I said, what are we going to do with all that? We have to take care of all of this. Mm-hmm. Someone's got to cut the grass, got to... You know, I mean, it's a, but he had a vision. So what we've done, to give you an idea, our last Thanksgiving, a year ago, we fed 40 veterans. This year, we fed over 500. When we have our meetings with John Henry, after our meeting, he says, oh, I'm headed over to my scout meeting. Hmm. I, I mean, he has, he's such a dedicated scouter because it's his love and concern for the youth. And that's what our mission is, too, to all, you know, remember our veterans, but the focus is on the succeeding generations, the ones that follow, to instill in them the memories and to inspire them to be good citizens. That, because that's what makes this nation great. It's the people, yeah. right. the people, the community, and that's what we, we foster. And that was part of a conversation we had last week with AMVETS Vice Commander Ron Lamb and former Governor John Waihe'e. They were talking about a special honor for John Henry Felix this weekend. Uh, it's an event sponsored by AMVETS. And, you know, the AMVETS Center has become a vibrant magnet for the community, offering everything from Zumba and martial arts classes and soon therapeutic horsemanship. AMVETS has plans to dedicate a special plaque honoring John Henry Felix, which they are fundraising for. And this Saturday uh, ceremony is by invite only, but uh, the ceremony will be broadcast on Olelo later. And we should mention that John Henry Felix is also a founding member of Hawaii Public Radio. We recently named our newest transmitter in his honor. And so, John Henry Felix, the veterans and HPR listeners salute you for your support of our community. Support for HPR comes from Kahala Market by Foodland, celebrating the season, offering culinary discoveries such as chef-prepared holiday dinners and wine selections, and gifts made in Hawaii. More at kahalamkt.com. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now head to South America for news of the birth of a young star that is bursting into the galaxy. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence for your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers Saturn will be visible in the west till it sets at around 9 p.m. Jupiter is also visible, and it sets a little later, around 10 p.m. The moon this week will be approaching its full phase, so spotting faint satellites and meteors will be very challenging indeed. 
And I understand this week we are headed to South America for a uh, new image of a young star. Yes, the Gemini South Observatory in Chile, sister observatory to the Gemini North atop Mauna Kea, has captured a spectacular image of a young star in the Chameleon Nebula, a vast star-forming region that, astronomically speaking, is quite close to our solar system, at a distance of around 500 light-years. Radiation from this young star has penetrated the dark clouds surrounding it and is bursting out into the galaxy. The result is a spectacular image that resembles a butterfly with one wing. And we'll have that at hawaiipublicradio.org where you find Stargazer and you could take a look at it. And these star-forming regions, pretty common, huh? Yeah, they are scattered throughout the galaxy, but studying them can be challenging because visible light from the young stars within them is obscured by dark clouds of star-forming material surrounding them, which is often why we study these objects in the infrared part of the spectrum. And are we seeing the star itself or just light from it? Well, in this case, we're not actually seeing the star itself, but light that has managed to escape the gaseous envelope and has lit up the surrounding clouds of gas, kind of like a cosmic laser light and smoke show. And explain why, if our solar system was born in a similar place, why we don't see that thing up in the sky. Well, our sun formed almost four and a half billion years ago, and our solar system has long since left the nursery and our stellar siblings behind, and we have since drifted out into the galaxy to seek our fortune. And as for those siblings, are they out there? They are. Somewhere out there adrift on the gravitational currents of the ocean of stars that is our Milky Way. Another fascinating Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Appreciate it. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Poet Noe Revilla had a stellar year. For one, she was the first Oebe poet to win the National Poetry Series competition. Her collection, Ask the Brindled, was selected for publication out of more than 1,600 entries in this year's competition. She talked to the conversation's Savannah Harriman Poet back in October about the power of words and the role of poetry in fostering connection. We wanted to revisit this conversation before we head into the new year and as we continue to navigate the uncertainty of the pandemic amid the emotional highs and the lows of the holidays. Revilla starts the conversation off with her favorite poetic form. The sonnet is one of my favorite poetic forms. And there is a reason this poetic form has emerged again and again over the centuries. There is a reason why contemporary poets, not just white, heterosexual, cis men with property, are writing sonnets. There is a reason why Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer, LGBTQIA plus folk, women are writing sonnets because it's such a thinking form. The sonnet is an argument. You have to present an idea or an image in those first four lines, develop them. And then there's an octave where you must deepen or depart and it's such a tight form of repetition and rhyme, 14 lines, and there really is no hiding in a sonnet. I love the form because it really does push you to be honest while making music. And I find that challenge to be illuminating for myself. And are you someone who has gravitated towards form? 
throughout your poetic career, or did you find the sonnet as your primary vehicle with which to explore a more structured form of language? I am Mo'o on both sides of my family. That's a cultural identity that I inherit. And because of that, I gravitate to shape-shifting. So I like to experiment. I like to play. And I think received forms get a bad rap because of constraints. But it's just more things to play with and wrap yourself around. Kino. Your black inscriptions sight a kinolo, whose feathered wingspan, nighttime eyes, and punishing beak comprise mo'oku oho. With my oiled hands, I greet her, with hungering for mo'opuna. Mai, she says, reciting from your thigh. Mai, mai e'ai. I have traveled from Maui, a lizard, mesmerized by dreams of Ohia and Aikane, lizard filled with smoke. Arrived, I eat, transforming in the forest of your grandmother's memory from lizard woman, dreaming, licking. Tattoo, permission, land, skin, traveling the night of your kino to sleep your thighs. Ho ow, ho ow, and wake. When you read the poem, Kino, you put this incredible pause, this momentous pause between lizard and woman, when you think of those two forms, how do they exist together? Do you find that you take on different forms based upon the space you're in and the needs that are asked of you? For me, there's no separation. There are different times where the mo'o in me will speak louder and there are times when the wahine in me will speak louder, but they're in the same body. For OEV, we have three people, right? We have one people to connect us to our akua and our ancestors, one people to connect us to our presence, and then another people to connect us to our future and our futurity, to our mo'opuna. And it's all in the same kino. It's all in the same body, there are different pilina, there are different ways of relating, there are different ways of being and making connections and understanding stories, making stories, but they're in the same kino. It's a relationship more than a separation for sure. X is a verb. When the torch is more crackling pit of skulls and carrying it means Waikiki at two in the morning, grateful, my love. The pitiful karaoke, pink wash and standing room only, we suffered together. Who said ex-lovers shouldn't hook each other by the bra and talk 
like which Venus would be next to make house and tangle with Gemini law. Who with the horns, forward thinking, bright with faith, will grope in darkness and make me a shape at last. Anything but an edge to leap from. Cliff incarnate. We spent months sharing ghosts, our marrow mistaken for medicine. But about this morning, you still haunt me. I still smell burning skin. I wonder, since you have these two poems, both of which are talking about shape making, what do you see as the different perspective between them? Kino was written in the throes of early romantic love. X is a verb was written after a romantic relationship ended, but our friendship was still, is still very much intact. And these two sonnets for me point to the different ways aloha emerges in our life. Kino and X is a verb, I hope, celebrate the fact that aloha is not straight, that there is more to aloha than a couple-centric heteronormative script. You know, so what happens before romantic love, after romantic love, alongside it? And my forthcoming book, Ask the Brindled, is about aloha and not coconut bra aloha, not I just got laid aloha, not that cheap thing sensationalized in hotel lobbies and all you can drink catamaran sunset sails in Waikiki. Ask the Brindled, these sonnets are committed to aloha aina as aina based intergenerational and complex. So it's not a surprise that shapeshifters like Mo'o haunt and thrive in this book. So for me, Kino was a way to document that even romantic love brings in our kupuna. Even romantic love, especially romantic love, brings in our aina. And X is a verb testifies to the beauty of friendship that survives, shapeshifts, evolves out of a romantic relationship that has ended. All these things are connected. And the sonnet for me is, is such a great way to acknowledge that expansiveness of aloha. Language is a tool. And, you know, just like any tool, it matters how, how you use it. And I feel like as the poet, there are so many ways to connect. And I have this way, poetry and education. And I feel that if there is a gay Hawaiian girl who can't come out yet for any number of reasons, maybe the same reasons I couldn't, and she picks up my book and she reads one poem and feels less alone. I did something good and not just for me, 
or my ego. That's not what this is about. I did something for our Lahui. Because the more there are of us standing in aloha and true aina-based complex aloha, the stronger we all are. And I think that poetry combats isolation. When you feel less alone, you love fearlessly. And we need more of that. My name is Nauri Villa. I am an Oivi queer poet and educator. I was born and raised on the island of Maui, and I currently live and love in Palolo Valley on the island of Oahu. To all my mo'o siblings, to all my sly siblings, and if you've read Hanani Kei's Sons, you know who I mean. And to all my queer oivi wahine, I see you and I believe you. Mahalo. That was poet Nau Ravilla in conversation with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. Ravilla's collection, Ask the Brindle, will be out in 2022.